Hello, you are listening to Knight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. I am public history graduate student Holly Baker, and I will be your host for this week's episode of Knight's History Cast. The Department of History's Dr. Robert Casanello recently sat down with Dana Chandler, archivist and assistant professor at Tuskegee University in Alabama. In March of 2018, Dana Chandler was a guest lecturer at the University of Central Florida. His lecture was titled, Lifting the Veil, Tuskegee Archives and Digitization. In the interview, Dr. Casanello talks with Dana Chandler about his efforts to digitally preserve the Tuskegee University archival collection. Have a listen to their conversation. Thank you for joining me. Um, And the first thing I want to talk about, because at least for me, I know a a great deal about Tuskegee because I'm interested in African-American history. I'm interested in the South. So, um, you know, I learned about Tuskegee a long time ago um, in my undergraduate education. But for a lot of people who may not be familiar with Tuskegee and may not realize that there's this long and storied educational history in Tuskegee, could you give them sort of a, a brief description of what Um, the University of Tuskegee is? Tuskegee University started on July 4th, 1881 through the efforts of two men, George W. Campbell and um, his cohort, uh, Lewis Adams. George W. Campbell was a former white slave owner and Lewis Adams was a former slave. Lewis Adams and a group of his friends got together and said, we really need a school here at Tuskegee for Macon County, but we don't have the money. We don't have the funds. So they went to George W. Campbell, said we'd like to get some funds to start the school. Uh, George W. Campbell then said, okay, we'll work to get the funding. And they contacted the state of Alabama. So July 4th, 1881, the state of Alabama provided the funding for Tuskegee to begin. Tuskegee began as a co-ed school in 1881. But beyond that, women were teaching men in 1881 at Tuskegee. Tuskegee starts out as an attempt to help the poor black families in Alabama. The philosophy of Booker T. Washington was to teach people to be teachers so they could go out in the communities, work with communities. Booker T. Washington's philosophy was that it should deal with your head, heart, and your hand. The head, intellectually, heart, your emotions, but your hand, hard work. Booker T's economic philosophy differed from a lot of people at that time. He has, there's a statement attributed to Booker T. Washington, let your bucket down where it is. What that philosophy means is this, that wealth builds upon wealth, a notion that Booker T. Washington came up with to advocate staying where you are. If you have a farm, stay where you're at. You've already built your house, you've already built your barns, you've already plowed the land. Stay where you are. When you die, your children inherit. If you move north in the Great Migration, you're going to work for the company store. You're not going to leave them anything. You're not even going to leave them a job. Stay where you are. That notion was very much instrumental in making sure that Tuskegee had a ready source of students from that point onward. Tuskegee is, its history is tied to its presidents, the first five presidents. 
uh, and it's very intimate history. The presidents were strong-willed. Some might even call them micromanagers. I probably would agree with that in every sense of the word. <laughs> but Tuskegee's history is full of interactions between whites and blacks. A lot of people don't realize that Tuskegee had a very international reach. In 1906, we graduated um, several students, I think it was 12, from around the world, in particular, one from Japan. We had students from Ireland that came early on, seeking their degrees. And the mission of Tuskegee has always been to provide a well-rounded education for its students. Sure. And, you know, the thing with me as a researcher, and one of this is, I think a lot of people probably don't realize this, and you, you know this, I'm sure, better than I do, but there is this tremendously um, wonderful, groundbreaking work that was done by Tuskegee scholars in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s in regards to lynching and sociology and stuff like this that are still kind of tapped into today. True. But I don't know what you mean by tapped in because it's not really. Well, I see a lot of people cite, you know, um, cite that material, go through that. I've gone through that material myself. The, the, the lynching record, yes. Yeah. But the information, not so much because we did not have Monroe Works collection processed. Monroe Work was the first archivist at Tuskegee University. He came here in 1904. The, it was originally called the Department of Records and Research, which was an archive containing 188 file cabinets with over um, 2 million documents. The lynching records are at Tuskegee, but what most people don't access, which they should, is Monroe Work's seminal work called the Negro Yearbook published from 1913 to 1943. Everything statistical about African Americans. So when I look at somebody's index or their footnotes and they haven't looked at the Negro yearbook, I kind of question things, just like I did then. Um, our records, our lynching records, are from 1883 to 1969 we have recorded 4,743 lynchings. I've had a lot of people come through there that done, have done research, but very few of them can tell you what I'm going to tell you. One-third were white. That's a big deal. And so I ask people, why? And it, they don't realize that it's because there were people that were supporting, doing business with, married, dating, having any kind of relationship. I have a definition for lynching that I use. It's not as septic as some. I think I like to think it's fluid. Lynching is not hanging. Hanging is part of lynching. Lynching we think of as people being hung. But it goes much beyond that. It was a way to control a people. It was a method of terror. People would hear about or see their friends or relatives lynched. And what was being told to them, not in so many words, don't have anything to do with whites. Whites 
don't have anything to do with blacks, this is what's going to happen to you. So there are a lot of people that were emotionally lynched because they were so afraid to do anything. That's what would happen to them. I interviewed a lot of people, and that seems to be the way they feel about it. That 4,743 people that we have record of is incorrect. Monroe Work was a statistician. He had very exact requirements that had to be met, criteria that had to be met. If they were not met, then he didn't include them in the records. I think he missed it there. And of course, there were plenty that were carted off in the middle of the night and nobody knows what happened to them. And finally, the thing that really gets me about lynching is we've missed it. You know, I bring up the fact that one-third were white. But we've not taken in consideration the thousands of Latinos that were lynched in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California. Thousands of Native Americans that were lynched. The thousands of Asian Americans that were lynched. So when somebody asks me for a definitive number of lynchings, I tell them I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, the work that you're describing here, especially, you know, I had actually heard of um, Monroe work when I was an undergraduate because I had a professor when I took when I took a class in African American history, introduced me to him and his work, and, and this would have been, you know, this pre-internet, <laughs> right? And so um, I remember him impressing upon us as a class and said, you know, he had done this great work, but you won't find it because, you know, a lot of people overlook it or the fact that during his time he was a victim of um, the Jim Crow Academy yes. where people were ignoring the great work that he was doing because he was black and he was at a black institution. And my professor was sort of kind of, um, you know, discovering him maybe for the first time, I'm not sure, and introducing to us to say, you know, there's some answers at Tuskegee, you know, that, that one may not... Um, realize your questions, you know, and that, that kind of really made an impression upon me. And I think now, I heard your talk last night, and one of the things that impressed upon me was sort of the way in which now we're living in this digital age, right? So, I mean, if I was a student today and my professor brought up um, Monroe work, I would go to Wikipedia at the first chance and look, look him up and hopefully find something, and if not find him on Wikipedia, maybe find evidence of him somewhere else on the internet. But I think you know, here's an opportunity, and you, you spoke a great deal about this last night, as far as um, bringing the history, the work, and the, the heritage of Tuskegee out to a wider audience digitally. I mean, do you feel that you're kind of, um, this is all part of a, of a grander mission? What, what is kind of driving you to do this? Well, I want to say one more about thing about Monroe work, if I could. I have felt that I needed to digitize his works, the um, Negro Yearbook, which was published at Tuskegee University. We have the only complete collection in the world. Um, that being said, it is my intent to do that sometime 
but unfortunately I have to prioritize things. Now regarding the our plans for the future, our and our reason for the things that we do, it is to let people know more about Tuskegee and to draw them into Tuskegee to find out more. Most people when and I'm gonna give you this as an example. Most people think that the Booker T. Washington collection, which is in the National uh, uh, it's, which is at the Library of Congress archives, that that is the collection of Booker T. Washington. First of all, it's not. It is the early days at Tuskegee collection. It is not the Booker T. Washington collection. And that's unfortunate. Um, that's a whole other story. But we have 155 boxes that we have processed of other materials, early days of Tuskegee, that we put into that label of Booker T. Washington, number two collection. But just to show you, people assume that's all the information about Booker T. Washington. They don't realize that we also have the National Negro Health Week, which he started, the National Negro Business League, which he started. We have their papers. We have papers of the boards of members of boards of trustees at that time. We have Lewis Adams papers and a bunch of others that all are very pertinent to an understanding of Booker T. Washington. There is no definitive biography of Booker T. Washington yet. He's never been given his due. There's plenty of debate about Du Bois and, and BTW. I don't think that they really understand. And most people don't even have a clue that, that W. Du Bois came and spoke at Tuskegee for a semester. I, I think that our goal is to put enough information out there and make it available to people to say, hey, come, there's more. Certainly. And one of the stats you mentioned last night that really kind of floored me was the number of visitors you said you get. It was I don't remember. I don't remember the stat you gave, but I don't remember. Was it a week, a day, or a month? Was it around 4,000 or something like that? 3,000 people in the last three years. Okay. So that's, I got the impression that's quite a bit from previous years. Yes, right? it is. So can you give us a sense uh, how many people visited the archives when you first got there and then how many are coming now and, and are you attributing that to your now digital presence? Yes, we are. Every mu very much so. Uh, but I think it's a combination of many things. Making ourselves uh, visible in a variety of ways. Uh, coming here makes us a visible. Uh, but our web presence definitely has been uh, a driving force for these people to come from all around the world. And we have visitors. We helped a young lady from the university in Beijing, and we digitized everything that she used for her dissertation. It had to go through through individuals and be approved for use. And we would get an email back saying this has been approved for her to use. She finished her book, or her dissertation and book, and uh, We've helped people from University of Queensland, um, all over Europe. Uh, it's it's amazing what the web has done for us in opening our archives to the world. There were people that were aware of the archives, 
there were people in um, the United States that were aware and they were making requests to visit the archives when it was closed for 10 years. But they wouldn't have been able to find what they needed because it just wasn't in any type of order. So by putting it in order, developing a database of the materials and digitizing select few items, we've made it more accessible to people. And we still get calls, like I got several yesterday or several emails requesting to come next week. In fact, I've got 10 people coming next week to do research and during their spring break. And they're coming because of what they found online. Yeah, I mean, that's a remarkable achievement. I know there's a great deal of debate and I would say even frustration on the idea that, you know, why are we, you know, making all this digital stuff available online freely? And, you know, what about libraries and museums and things drying up? But I think, you know, your example demonstrates that there is this relationship between, you know, making your presence known online and actual foot traffic on site, that they go hand in hand. And it's really important to sort of, you know, if you care about one, you have to care about both, I think. Uh, you're right. One of the problems is that I have seen that we've tried to address is the fact that I don't put everything out online. I put select items out there to draw people into the archives. So we're still relevant. I have to be relevant to um, our administration, otherwise they won't keep our doors open. I'm also making people aware that you know digitization is not the be-all and the end-all because of the changing technology, and that's always a concern also. What I'm trying to do is to tell people that, hey, this is available, here's a select overview of what we have. Since I've been there, we've created almost 300 finding aids. There were none. Uh, it's a job that has required uh, a lot of concentration and a lot of sweat and tears. You know, it really has. But I think that overall, doing this relationship between the archives and its analog data and making certain things available digitally. The relevancy, in particular, that that 933,000 hits that we've had on our website, 45% from abroad, and of that 45%, 77% are looking at one thing and one thing only, and that's George Washington Carver's bulletins that we've scanned, all of them, made them available for everybody. They're using that to help their lives be better in Vietnam, in, in Australia, in Peru, in Brazil, all over Europe, Georgia. They're all looking at those bulletins because they're farming the way we were farming at the turn of the century. They don't have access to the fertilizers and the pesticides and the, so they're trying to make their lives better and they're using our documents to do that to me that's you can't get any cooler than that yeah i mean that would that was that's a great story that's a great story dana thank you for joining me today you're welcome thank you for having me
That was Dr. Robert Casanello and Dana Chandler talking about the archival collection of Tuskegee University. For Knight's History Cast, I'm Holly Baker. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future interviews and conversations. 